So, um, actually, today we're looking very specifically at verse 18 of chapter 3 of Colossians, which is over on the, the, the facing, or the following page, 1170. But as I've been doing, we're going to read this entire section up to that verse because we want to hear uh, God's instruction in a whole way. Um, we live by the counsel of God, not by by bullet points. So hear the reading of God's word, the voice of God in the earth, Colossians 3, 1 through 17. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Please offer prayer with me. Father, you speak to us as of husband and wife and of marriage. And we have heard for decades in, in, in our society of the demise of the family, of the threat to the family, of the, of the fragility of the marriage bond. 
that we've not escaped it. It's not out of grasp. We don't have the strength to hold it, Lord. We we would wreck it or we would make it into some tool for ourselves. And Father, I am so aware that it is my calling to speak your word, to preach to your people. I ask that you would work by your spirit with the tenderness and the strength with the sympathy and ambition that you would stir us up that in Christ we would praise you that you would persuade us how deeply loved we are in your son father praise Christians here, by faith in Christ, wives and husbands extend the peace of Christ into their families, even beyond their families. For this work, they must be supported, instructed, and exhorted. Now, last week, we looked at authority and submission in Colossians 3, 18-4-1. Christians are called to be instruments of Christ's peace by engaging in these kinds of submission and authority. And this is generally rejected in our society because our culture is obsessed with our individual rights, our own production of our own identity. Sadly, Submission and authority are often embarrassing to Christians. Even though Jesus is their Lord and he is God's servant. So I, I know that this is controversial. Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husband, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Imagine the kind of talk that this Bible verse would stir up if it was a billboard out on 55 or 401. How? How can Paul address marriage in two short sentences? Well, first, Paul is brief because this is an exhortation, not an explanation. Second, a succinct exhortation is possible and useful because the Colossians were already well instructed by Paul's colleague Epaphras. They know what Paul is talking about. And third, Paul can be terse with his exhortation because you are not only instructed, you are supported. You aren't left alone to be a wife or a husband. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you are called in one body. 
Marriage is about the peace of Christ. And the body of Christ will help you do the work of marriage. Now, why does Paul bring up the top of, topic of marriage at all? It's part of a trio, marriage, parenting, slavery. And they are similar, submission and authority, but why include them? Marriage is fundamental for society. Marriage creates households. Marriages make islands of hospitality and productivity. Marriages touch all the connections of regular life. And the peace of Christ claims all of it. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, people dismiss this verse. Paul doesn't explain everything, so it can't mean what it sounds like, apparently. And, and, and people don't like this verse because they think it makes marriage sound like childhood or slavery. Maybe, instead of denigrating marriage, Paul is elevating your view of parenting and even of slavery. Obviously, Slavery and parenting share something with marriage. But think, what is more important about people than the ability to enforce your own will and wisdom? Is getting your own way your significance? Is that salvation? Salvation is complete forgiveness and growing freedom. In Colossians 3, 117, we just read, you get personal holiness. You turn from wicked motives and behaviors. You get an interpersonal holiness. You turn from a life of provoking and being provoked, and you share in the back and forth of love and forgiveness with God's people. You also get a social holiness. You turn from exploiting people and resources and opportunities as part of your rebellion against God, you actually, because Christ is raised, you actually bring blessings into society. You can actually accomplish things bigger than your own life. Things that are pleasing to God. That's marriage. That's family. That's a life. Live for others. This is social holiness. You bring the results of Christ's victory into the world. In verse 17, Paul says, Whatever you do, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. What authority is put on you? What expectation? Your life is the extension of Christ's victory on the earth, and marriage is part of that. So Christians here, by faith in Christ, Wives and husbands extend the peace of Christ into their families and even beyond their families. And for this work, they must be supported and instructed and exhorted. So what is the basic instruction about marriage? What is Paul assuming under his quick wives submit and husbands love? Paul elaborates this the most in Ephesians chapter 5. But the centerpiece, actually occurs earlier in Ephesians chapter 1. 
what we had as our call to worship. Look at your bulletin. Hear this text. Here is the centerpiece of Paul's teaching on marriage. What is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul is praising God for his generosity to us in Christ. In Christ, we have a solid hope. In Christ, we have a glorious inheritance. In Christ, we have great power working in our lives. The resurrection, life from the dead. What's accomplished after sin is put down? All of this comes to you because Jesus is exalted by God in victory. Jesus reigns above all rule and authority and power and dominion. It is with the victorious Jesus that the church is united. And read that last sentence. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. Here is the model of marriage that Paul expounds in Ephesians chapter 5. It is an authority that exalts. The church is not under his feet. It's a lordship with intimacy. The church is his body. It is a submission that is full, overflowing with glory. Sadly, very sadly, American evangelicals have attempted to tame this model to make it more acceptable, more reasonable, more American. They protect your enthrallment with your own rights. They say the husband has authority only when spouses disagree. A wife only submits when it's necessary. The husband's authority is, in this uh, trademark phrase, tie-breaking authority. That's like the vice president having a vote in the U.S. Senate when a hundred people are split down the middle. This reduces marriage to an arrangement for collaboration with a mechanism to prevent gridlock. You cannot for a moment claim that this popular evangelical view imitates the victory and the glory and the generosity of the Lord Jesus. No. You must not discard marital authority and submission as a primitive custom, typical of the first century, but outside the will of Christ for today. 
This is what Paul gives us. Christ and church, head and body, a Lord with all authority and lady filling out the glory of their union. And Paul's exhortation in Colossians 3.18 fits the wives submit, the husbands love. That does look like Jesus and the church. Even if you think that that must exclude intimacy and exaltation and glory. The things that Paul praises the Lord for. The gifts that the Lord Jesus gives in taking the church as his bride, his body. Christ is good. And, and, and in fact, Christ is better than you think. And so is marriage. Now, just briefly, I want to indicate how these themes are woven into and, and in the assumptions, as Paul writes this letter to the Colossians. And I guess the briefest way is just to look at his first large teaching section. I'll read this text for you. Here Paul echoes those themes. Christ's lordship over all powers, his union with the church as head and body, and the peace, the order he brings in the world by saving mankind from sin. Here, Colossians 1, 15 to 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now let's look at Paul's exhortation. And, and, and I'm sure already I have raised and not answered questions in your minds. There are many things worth considering. There are surely some things that are more precious, more tender, more urgent or vexing to some of us than others. But Paul really is just addressing the basic structure of marriage here. There are extreme and convoluted issues that, that, that need separate attention. And, and Paul does some of that over in 1 Corinthians 7. This, this is just the baseline, if you will, normal operating conditions. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. The best way to understand submission is from its common use in the ancient world, the military. That is where this, this word shows up really as a, almost a technical term. Soldiers submit to their commanding officer. They are trained and equipped and they direct their efforts to fulfill the commander's mission. They are not subservient. They're fearsome. They're disciplined. They know their task. 
They know that the larger strategy depends on their work. No, they do not make what people would call the crucial decisions, but their discipline is the crucial factor. They aren't in charge of the battle, but they are the ones who win the battle. A wife is called to deploy her gifts and opportunities to bring success to her husband's purpose as head of that household. Her calling is to make the larger whole a success. That is submission. What about obedience? Yes, uh, that's a proper word. Soldiers obey. The tra traditional wedding vow is right and good to obey. But still, here, in Colossians, notice Paul uses the word obey of children and slaves. He does not use it of wives. Submission doesn't primarily do what it's told. Submission does whatever is necessary for the army's good order and the mission's success. A general needs intelligence. Submissive wives remedy a husband's ignorance. Soldiers give accurate reports. Submissive wives frankly tell a husband when his plans and expectations need to be changed. Soldiers change the plan on the fly because sometimes events make a plan stupid. His commander's success depends on his wit and courage and his readiness to do the unexpected. Now, we can describe submission in negative ways, too. What's not? A wife must not be submersive, sub subversive, taking actions that work against the husband's purposes and ambitions. You know, sometimes people are sub subversive by doing exactly what they were told. When they know darn well that directions were based on misinformation, one way despite your husband, is by doing exactly what he said and implementing his big mistake. Submission discusses. A wife also must not have a competing agenda. This is serious and subtle and it's a powerful temptation. You see, submission means that your husband cannot know everything you're doing. He's depending on you. He might not notice he might just notice enough to be confused, but be sure, wait, she's making things happen. You see, because he's trusting in you, the household becomes bigger than his own ability. He, he can't know and put a finger on all. Yes. Wives should be making judgment calls and changing details and reworking plans. But there's one thing you must not do. There's one bit of common sense that you need to recognize. That's the opposite of submission. You must not decide to ask for forgiveness rather than permission. Submission is not treating a husband like God. No, it must be Paul says, as is fitting in the Lord. Submission does not reject God's law. It does not give success to wickedness. 
Submission does not nurse resentment because a husband falls short or acts foolishly. Submission is prayerful and persevering. Submission does not pull back even from being treated as a servant. Sometimes Submission is in the Lord and takes satisfaction in imitating Christ's humility. And yes, sometimes it's humiliation. Wives are called to submit and to measure what is appropriate by comparing it with the Lord Jesus himself. That's why a wife's submission is done by faith. You can only copy that by delighting in how it is the work that is both your rescue and the measure of his love for you. Now the husband's duty is to love his wife. This marital authority was assumed in the first century context, but love was not. The husband loves his wife as God loves his created works, delighting in the diversity, providing for its luscious and thriving, investing it with his own glory. The husband must know and nourish his wife's gifts and capacities. Yes, really, this household depends on the wholeness of this is not putting two halves side by side. Inseparable, you will find the glory of the Lord in all his good things. All his good things are glorious. The husband loves his wife as Christ loves the church. Her weakness or hurt is his. Her faults or sins do not alienate him. He is zealous to build up her confidence and joy before accomplishing any other sort of remedy or improvement. He wants to increase the scope of her accomplishment ambition. His chief concern is that her submission would be fruitful and impress her with the glory that she carries in her life. For her to see her calling before God. Yes, he speaks and works for her holiness, but not by, by grading her performance. He works for her to enjoy the results of Christ's victory. Whatever the goals or business or necessities, the husband aims to do whatever they do together in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, now, Paul explicitly defines the husband, the husband's duty in a negative fashion. Do not be harsh with them. Of course, this excludes physical mistreatment, although that would not have been uncommon among the Colossians' unbelieving neighbors. Jesus suffered the blows and injuries deserved by his church. Berating, verbal humiliation, and contempt were no less common in the first century than today. The believing husband 
brings the peace of Christ into the marriage. He doesn't bring penalties or consequences or the expected result of sin on his wife. He, well, he may well make hard decisions and choose great disappointment for his wife, but never heedlessly or unkindly. The husband's authority is constrained. He cannot give her needless hardship or pointless frustration, her limits and vulnerabilities, her desires and aspirations must be handled carefully by him. She is not under his feet. She is his body. Marriage is two-sided but not symmetrical. Of course, there is more, much more than marital submission and authority, but there is not an alternative. There isn't a need for some kind of counterbalance to submission and love. Authority and submission are not two different problems managing to compensate for each other. It is not symmetrical like head and body, like Christ and church, like man and woman. It's a profound mystery, an unimaginable surprise. Two become one. Two families are transformed into the past, and a new family arises out of vows and the union of a new life. It is true that both sides of Paul's exhortation share one thing. Neither uses the word if. Submission is not measured out to match the love, and love is not expanded or contracted to match the submission. Yes, your spouse has a duty towards you. Paul commanded it. You might think like an enlightened American. Her submission is my right. His love is my right. No. The Lord Jesus did not come to champion your rights. He died and rose to win your heart and to make you like himself. You bring the peace of Christ into the world, into your marriage. You are not bringing your own victory. If you make marriage a competition of rights and privileges, you will not celebrate Christ's victory. That's not the way of peace, of living by faith. You enjoy the results of Jesus' victory by setting your mind on things above where Christ is at the right hand of God, seated. Both husband and wife are tempted to be shaped by the other's performance. But both are to be shaped by the victorious Christ. To find in him all 
and imitate him with awe. There's a startling Old Testament moment that, that separates faith in Christ from fighting for what you want, protecting your rights. This end of Joshua 5, when Israel arrives to conquer the promised land, this language of the peace of Christ, it picks up the theme, not just of exodus, but of conquest. God's goodness spread across that landscape. Israel was bringing the victory of Yahweh. But hear this. When Joshua was by, was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is Christian here. By faith in Christ, wives and husbands extend the peace of Christ into their families and even beyond their families. For this work, they must be supported, instructed, and exhorted. I have prepared this sermon with some trepidation. Um, not so much because, oh, golly, that's a controversy, but because this is so precious. And um, I, um, I want you to have more than well enough done the sermon. I want you to have God's word. Of course, there is more to say about marriage. But hear this, there is not opposite. Paul is clear. And I do, I exhort you, your marriages are to be the extension of the peace of Christ, his victory into the world. And like everything in the Christian life, your marriages need exhortation. Regularly, graciously. I have here put forward instruction, but you may well need more instruction. And so I, I urge you to talk with your elders. They, and I know these brothers, they have a sense of the, the importance and the tenderness. They're married. They've stayed married. Their wives have stayed married. They can help you find answers and resources that match your questions or struggles. You, you need to be exhorted. 
but you need the instruction that will win your heart like the command of the Lord standing before Joshua. And, and I, I remind all of you, marriages must be supported by the body of Christ. You should expect that in our fellowship, in our life together, marriages can be enriched with a submission like the Lord Jesus and a love like the Lord Jesus. Pray with me, please. Oh, Father, glorify your Son. Who would ever, who would ever speak of the bride of Christ except for the Father and the Son to whom he gives her? Lord, work in us that the fullness of your son would be more than filling us. It would spill over into the darkness and the brokenness that his victory would spread. We pray in his name. Amen.